The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad, it's just a show. In a world where there are many superheroes, even in 21st century long after Cold War, supervillains frequently have extremely thick Russian accents. This is how it should be. And this is Totally Super. Hi, welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name's Justin. And my name is Arthur, apparently sporting something from Transylvania or, I don't know, the Count from Sesame Street. I don't Street. know what I that is. Know. I, 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 um, I, today, we are uh, reviewing what I have long called my least favorite Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Uh, I Iron don't. Too. I, I just have to jump right in. I don't get the hate. I watched this one again and enjoyed it just as much as the first one. So, um, so I guess at the end of the podcast, uh, we will do our best to place it in the in the pantheon of Marvel Cinematic Universe movies because maybe it does belong at the bottom, but maybe that's because they're all really good. I don't know. I don't. Know what we're gonna say. I I have things to say. Um, I have I have thoughts. Uh, but let me start off, as I always do, by asking you, what were the situation under which you watched this? Did you see this when it came out? I saw this one in the theaters. And uh, and your thoughts when you saw it. So now, keeping in mind, so far at this point, we've had Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk, and that's it. And so Iron Man 2 comes I enjoyed out, it. and you think to yourself? I enjoyed it. I think I actually possibly enjoyed it a little more than I did the first one. Um, there was just possibly because the budget was bigger and everything, there was just... A, there was more of a. I, I really liked the the dive into Tony's character. I mean, this was also one of the first major times. Not only we just reestablished, okay, we can make movies about superheroes, but this movie was also one of the first times when we were saying, okay, we can make movies that delve into sort of flawed characters who are superheroes. Like they did not shy away from how much of a megalomaniacal narcissistic jerk. Tony was in this, and I felt that the movie was better for it. I do think that there is a, a legitimate criticism to be lobbied at the Tony Stark character in that his arc is always the same. He's like he's an arc reactor. Ha! <laughs> ha! Ah, I see what you um, did there. Uh, uh, you know, but that every single movie starring Iron Man is about how Iron Man is a narcissist, and at the end he learns a lesson to not be a narcissist anymore. And then yeah, in the next movie true, starring because- Iron Man. He's if you look at the overall arc, and it's not even so much a narcissist, it's if you look at the overall arc of his character in the Marvel Universe, and especially even in each film, it's not just that he's a narcissist, it's that he actually, I am convinced, has a God complex. Everything, starting from the, I mean, the first movie was him about him saying, you know what, my weapons make the world safer. And his realization in that film was not, oh... Maybe my weaponry doesn't make the world safer. It was instead, my weaponry only makes the world safer if I'm the one using them. Um, and this that was still the case in this one, too. Like, the it is not an unreasonable ask, necessarily, for, you know, any government uh, or just, you know, any community to be like, hey, you seem to have sole control over this thing that is... Don't get me wrong, a great benefit to us right now, but uh, you interested in possibly maybe, you know, bringing other people in on that, you know, just in case something happens to you? 
Um, he, like Tony, and you'll hear me coming back to this again and again, Tony is convinced that only he can be the savior of humankind, whether he admits that to himself or not. I mean, and you see that all the way through Age of Ultron. Yes, I think that's fair. I and And I'm only half joking when I say that Tony seems to just learn the same lesson over and over again. I will mm-hmm. say that there is a sameness between Iron Man 1, Iron Man 2, um, Iron Man 3, and Age of Ultron. That it's sort of, at the beginning, he is facing his god complex. At the end, something has happened to teach him the error of his ways. Um, I think we are, like, I think the first time we frankly see a... a Although, look, look at Civil War. He does the same. In Civil War is the same thing is where he's, you know, he tries to exert too much control. And the, now, look, that is, you know, that is one of the things that that would be in the comic books is that there would be a sameness to the characters. It's not like Wolverine's arc is terribly different from the first X-Men mm-hmm. all the way through the last X-Men, not including Logan. Right. It's like there's yeah. like it's you, you went to go see Iron Man because you wanted to see Tony Stark do Tony Stark. And this is the story we like to see Tony Stark. Be in, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying that it's the same every time. Um, but I'm yeah. Saying actually, that ironically, is... uh, Civil War. Now that I think of it, that is the first instance of him saying, "Oh, you know what? Maybe I need some oversight." But he's saying, you see, again, he's saying I need oversight, but he is still saying that I think everything should be this way, and I'm going to make all of you do it the way I think it should be done, even if you don't want to. Completely agreed. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not age of Ultron. I don't see it so much age of Ultron. I see it sort of, he's, he's a team player. He's, you know, a team player when he needs to be, he, you know, is trying to do it all on his own, not because of a God complex, but because the people around him is, he doesn't want, you know, Peter involved because he feels a, a responsibility to Peter, but he, oh, that's you know, interesting. No bring other people in. Cause I actually see so, for age of Ultron to me, that's one of the most clear examples of it where I'm sorry. He, I said age of Ultron. I meant infinity war. I meant Infinity War. Okay, that, yes, no, that that I completely agree with. Um, Yeah, no, Infinity War seems to be a, yeah, he's, that is his least God complex. Um, And certainly it's the only film where by the end, he, despite all of his best machinations and plans, has failed. Yeah, without a doubt. Okay, so uh, so Iron Man two opened on April twenty six two thousand ten. It had a budget of two hundred million dollars, a box office uh, of six hundred and twenty three point nine million dollars. Big hit, huge hit, um, uh, a big deal. My first impression when I saw the movie, of course, is as it always is when I see one of these movies, even movies that I later on kind of hate. If you watch the Trek off movie, in the Trek off movie, I'm walking out of Star Trek into darkness, largely felt by Star Trek fans to be one of the not as good ones. And even by me, it's one that I never rewatch. I'm literally walking out of the theater. I have it. It's in a movie that's been released. Me going, this is the best Star Trek there's ever been. There will never be another one as good. Um, Because I am, you know, if you please me with the whiz bang, I'm going to generally like it unless it really just sucks. Um, and this one did not really just suck. As time has gone on, there are elements of this film that I find so grating that I forget how much of the other parts of the film that I like. Um, because I'm there are really interested that I have to know huge, what these elements are. 
yeah, um, I will say that my derision from the film, um, I won't give you a total spoiler for the end, but I will say that my derision for the film and rewatching it is like, oh, hold on. This is a film that is actually pretty good and I kind of like that has some grating moments. And I just remembered the grating moments mm. in rewatching the film. I think that it in that I never rewatched this film. I started losing all the good stuff and keeping all the bad stuff, sort of like, sort of like an like an ex-wife. Not that I have one of those, but like, like where you forget all the good stuff and you just remember the bad stuff that happened. That's sort of what happened. Well, with it's, this the, movie. Old, it's the old saw of, you know, one negative review, review carries more power than twenty positive ones. Yeah, and that works. That works, I guess, internally in my own head as well, uh, because mm-hmm. this was a better film than I remembered, although still a film with problems. So I guess. At that, I should probably jump in with a plot. Let's jump into the plot, yeah. Okay, here we go. There's a guy in Russia, uh, Mr. Ivan Vanko, uh, who is played by Mickey Rourke, who's really mad at Stark and Tony Stark and Iron Man because it turns out that his dad, Anton, who has just died, was was partially responsible for the development of the arc reactor. Seeing that Iron Man is now a superhero and mourning the loss of his dad, Ivan Vanko decides to take his underworld knowing tattooed covered criminal underground knowing self and his super genius status to create himself amazing laser whips and to call himself whiplash. Meantime, Tony back in the States is suffering from poisoning from the palladium in his chest that is powering the arc reactor. He goes through one after the other after the other of this element that is poisoning his blood and he knows that one the when the ticking clock oops I mean the sensor saying the amount of palladium in his blood gets to 100 that he's going to die despite that he still needs to be Iron Man and he uses Iron Man both as a promotional tool for his own company but also to go save the world from problems including problems introduced by Anton Vanko now there is another Tony Stark, the inverse of Tony Stark, all the smarts, none of the cool. This is Justin Hammer, who is another person who develops weapons. He's a competitor to Tony Stark, and he is very interested to watch the downfall of Tony Stark after Tony Stark absolutely decimates the Senate herring, trying to bring him down for keeping the Iron Man suit. Not wanting to be outdone by Tony Stark, Justin Hammer teams up with with Ivan Vanko, break him out of prison, making the world think that he's dead after Ivan Vanko has attacked Tony Stark in Monaco in a very dramatic and implausible fight scene at a race. Breaking him out Many of prison. Many cars they were com- split that day. The many cars were split that day. They decide at that point to get together to form a bunch of drones that are basically Iron Man armor without the Iron Man inside. But Ivan Vanko has another plan. In the meantime, Tony just decides to let it go. He feels like he's going to die and he finds that demon in a bottle which is what they're trying to do. And he becomes a terrible drunk for about 15 minutes, gets in a terrible fight with Rhodey, who decides to take the original Iron Man armor and fight with Tony. This is causes mayhem and Tony's stock in the public is down and his relationship with Pepper is bad. And that's a real problem because he just made Pepper the head of the, the head of all of Stark Industries because you can do that in this film. Tony finds himself at a diner at or at a donut shop with agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., including Coulson from the first movie uh nick fury from the end of the first movie and his legal analyst and who's his legal analyst it turns out she's a plant from steel shield her name is natasha romanoff and she is the black widow she continues to work under undercover with tony's there's a lot to this movie she continues to work undercover with tony's company while tony 
decides to work on a new element that's not going to hurt him and he creates that and Anton develops the suits and and there's betrayal between him and Justin Hammer and then there's a big thing at the Stark Expo at the end where he betrays Justin Hammer again and the suits end up attacking everyone and there's a big fight and she's Black Widow and she fights people and at the end there's lots of fights and explosions and that's pretty much the plot. Uh, he ends up being uh, okay and he doesn't die because there's lots more Iron Man. And that's the plot. I can't even keep going. It was really long. It's really long because you yeah, know no, what? that was good. This, this movie wants to have all the stuff. And that's one of my problems with it. That's one of my I, problems. You know, I, I, I agree with you that there was a lot in this. Uh, watching it again, the pacing didn't seem to bother me. It did seem to still move pretty pretty well from scene to scene. Um, it did. There is always the... Uh, this is a problem that happens a lot in superhero films. Uh, which is the two villain problem, which is rather than devoting enough screen time and story to taking one villain and making that villain, you know, really well fleshed out uh, and a true foil for the hero, they're like, you know what, we should have two. Um, now, in this one, it's a little different because only one of the villains is a superhero and the other one is just, uh, you know, is is just like you say, Tony Stark light. Um, but, uh, here's you my see problem it in... though, Arthur, here's my problem. You say that they're two villains and I'd say the definition of a villain in a movie is an external antagonist, right? Not an internal antagonist, not someone who changes from within the ranks, but an external antagonist that is brought in to challenge the hero. That's someone really that what is actively working piece... against the protagonist's goals. Yes. In which case you now have to also include shield. Because S.H.I.E.L.D. is another thing that he has to overcome, another obstacle he has to walk around and get around, and some, someone else who's controlling his actions that he's not trying to. Plus, you have see, the See, I saw S.H.I.E.L.D. as more of an ally in this. S.H.I.E.L.D., I didn't see S.H.I.E.L.D. as working against... They are not helpful until the, it, until the very end. They're, they're the... They're, you know what they are? If you look at the structure of the movie, they are the antagonist until the end. They are um, Harry Osborn, who changes his mind at the end of Spider-Man 3 and then becomes helpful. But... They're, Wait, when you say the very end, what do you mean? Because I'm not following you. I mean, I mean that that you can mark the point where Shield becomes super helpful at the end of this movie as the point when Black Widow starts actually attacking. They do give him something in the middle that he's able to use, but largely they pull him out of the story and force him from. They they stop him from getting back into his own story where he wants to be as to overcome them. Plus, well, Shield is argue, but well, Shield is arguably the only people that actually were, like they were the ones who were externally. Uh, helpful in saving his life. Like, the whole push for, hey, continue your father's legacy, you know, develop this new element, all of those things. Um, S.H.I.E.L.D. was instrumental in that. Um, I don't let see me, that let as me, antagonistic. Let me frame it a different way, because I'm going to give you a fourth antagonist as well, um, which is his own um, sickness that he has. So if, you know, you have, you know, the antagonist in something can be can be man versus society, man versus nature, you know, in a drama, it would be man gets cancer, man fights cancer, man beats or doesn't beat cancer, and that's the drama, right? And that's the drama mm -hmm. that he's undergoing with with the the fact that he's dying from this. It's this thing he has to overcome or it's going to kill him. It's absolutely an antagonist, man versus nature. And then you have this, which is society, S.H.I.E.L.D., who's obstructing him from what he wants to do and making him do what they want to do, which is ultimately the right thing. And you could tell that story that would just be that story and that would be a good enough drama, but but he has to overcome that. Then he has the Justin Hammer. Then he ha the, my, my point being is that 
in this film, I feel, and I guess this is the biggest problem I have. All these stories that I'm talking about, the shield and the cancer and the and the palladium story are tangentially related to one another. Like they they do inter interact with one another and are important to one another. But his interaction with his disease is separate from his interaction from shield. If that makes sense. That that's mm-hmm. there. It feels like there are a number of different dramas all happening at the same time, and I would, I see what I you're saying. Say, I see what you're yeah. saying, and you're going along, and you know, like you're essentially uh, you're saying the same thing, and that this movie does suffer from too many antagonists. Um, I do feel like the cancer and the shield one are or not cancer, uh, but the you know the palladium sickness um, and the shield one are more related than the others. Um, and actually come to think of it, you know, and even Ivan Vanko and Justin Hammer are definitely related in that they do, I mean, they essentially do the supervillain team up where, you know, Ivan Vanko betrays the other predictably. Um, but I think one of the things that does strike me about this is while the movie does not suffer from villain bloat to the same degree as say Spider-Man 3 did. Um, not at all. I don't, and I don't want to overstate my case there. No. Yeah, um, I do feel, though, that there was no, I mean, we've said a number of times, Marvel does sometimes, like, where the one area where DC does consistently have it over Marvel is in the quality of its villains. Um, There was really not a great villain in this one. Uh, Going back, watching the original Iron Man, Obadiah Stane, um, especially on my second watch through, I was like, oh, this guy's a great villain. Um, and I think because you say one of the key principles of an antagonist is that they're working against the protagonist. Um, now, yes, you can have some villain off in a laboratory or off in a dark tower somewhere actively working against the hero, and you don't have the hero and the villain meet up until the end of the film. To me, it is far more interesting to watch the relit in an ideal film, there should be a relationship between hero and villain. And that need that relationship needs to be two ways. Um, so making Ivan Vanko, giving him a death wish against Tony uh, for, you know, the idea, you know, the sins of the father sort of thing. That's fine. That's been done a lot. What I wanted was more than two conversations between them. Uh, because otherwise, you're just watching scenes where, oh, the hero's off doing this thing, and then you're watching a scene where the villain is off doing something else, and you don't really see those two things interact until the end. My favorite movie with villain bloat um, is one of, a movie we're going to eventually hit, and you're going to be surprised how high this movie is on my list of favorite movies, is Batman Returns. I was, uh, Batman that Returns was literally has, what I thought you were going to say. Has three principal villains, and the Batman has a different relationship with all three of them, completely different relationship with all three of them, acts differently with that, and he pings back and forth between the three of them like a ping pong ball, and they ping against each other a little bit here and there. Um, it is this, this. I don't want to say cacophony, nor is it a, a harmony. It's sort of a, you watch this thing ping into each other. It's almost like you've taken these these four characters and they're all like like billiard balls and you've like thrown them as hard as you can onto the pool table and they're just clanking into each other over and over again and off the walls. It's mm-hmm. um I find that movie to be a joy. Um, but I think part of the reason I can find that movie to be a joy is Batman in that movie is more of just a 
he's the the cue ball for lack of a better term in 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 my mm-hmm. allegory there's not much to him so you just get to watch him react to these interesting villains and i think it's 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 a cool thing the problem you have here and it's it's you know it's an embarrassment of riches and that you don't get that out of tony stark and out of robert downey jr you get which is not to say look i, I am not impugning michael keaton who is also one of the greatest actors of our age but the way that that downey tackles this role you do see a real full on you know, in-depth, three-dimensional character interaction with every one of these things that he has. But the problem that I have is that they are so different. When he's, you know, fighting the villain of the Palladium The storylines are separate and don't really... Don't really well, and he's got such a different way, you know. He, when he's fighting the Palladium sickness, you know, as that villain, he's he's down and he's 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 serious and he's secretive and he's scared. And when he's fighting against Justin Hammer, he's you know snarky and he's you know he's the Tony from the the first movie. And when he's fighting against against Shield, he's frustrated and he's he's frustrated and he's got a little bit of the snark there, but it's a little bit different. And so he's got like I feel like I'm watching a number of of movies altogether or like small movies that have just been shuffled like cards that he is a different Tony Stark, depending on which, which the ones he's, he's in and none of them are bad and none of them don't make sense for the story that he's in with that one. But the way they bounce off each other is, uh, I don't want to damn the movie for this well, because now, it's certainly, the you, you also, the, you said the, uh, um, like one of the things that you liked about in Batman returns was that Batman interacted with each of those different villains in different ways. So how is that different from... And I'm not disagreeing with you. Don't get me wrong. The way Batman interacts with the villains in Batman Returns is more compelling than, uh, than how Tony Stark interacts in this one. Uh, but, how is, but then you said one of the problems with this film was that Tony is reacting with the vil- interacting with the villains in totally different ways. Like, what's the, what's the distinction? I think because there? Batman was not also dying of bat cancer... And also fighting alcoholism, and also oh I forgot, Rhodey is an antagonist in this film until the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, so and so isn't also fighting with you know in a big argument with Alfred at the same time, um, mm-hmm. and isn't also having a different relationship with a girlfriend. You know, it, you know what I mean. Like it's it's. It's there's so much. It's, it's basically just too much. This is this this is the same allegory, except there are like seventeen different balls on the on on the table. Mm-hmm. And the reason that. that Batman returns so well is because that's sort of an elevated reality. It's sort of a circus. It's literally a circus environment in that film. It's a three ring circus, which I wonder if that was. Uh, you know, I really wonder now that I think about it, if that was sort of the the thematic resonance behind the way they decided to make the structure of the film work. But this is mm-hmm. just you know Tony is. Pepper becomes an antagonist in the film. Rhodey is an antagonist the entire way through the film until he learns. Well, the essentially, late, late. well, here's it. It's if you are telling a story about, um, and particularly if you're te- now, granted, I'm I'm making this too serious. I might be reaching too much, but one of the central things that happens to somebody wrestling with addiction or somebody who's going through a downward spiral is that they start alienating literally everybody in their life. Um, that's the whole point of interventions. The power of an intervention is when you have literally everyone you have cared about in your life suddenly come and say, I cannot do this anymore. You are pretty much pushing us all away. That is not the, now, technically, if you are telling a story about somebody who's going through a downward spiral, 
technically you could say literally everybody in their life is an antagonist because they because they come into conflict. Um, but really, I see it for Pepper, for Rhodey, um, those... I'll give that to you for Pepper. Are not, th- those are not antagonists. Rhodey has a, Rhodey has a completely an- different... Brody has a completely different like thing that he's trying to do. Brody's trying to get the suit. Like there's also the pushing away. I agree with you when it comes to Pepper. That's fair. But yeah, Pepper Rhodey... is more of a Pepper is more of a symptom of, or she's a, she's a she's a symptom of the primary battle that he has with his own mortality. Um, but you're right. Brody does Brody does sort of straddle those two. Yeah, I mean it's. I guess that's the thing, though, right? It's like the story that you're talking about is a full and real life story, and I would say. It's not addiction necessarily, but PTSD used in the same way is the way that they do Iron Man mm-hmm. 3. There's Iron Man 3 is about how how a disorder causes somebody to push everybody away from themselves. And, and mm-hmm. that's that's one of the reasons I there are things about Iron Man 3 I really don't like as well. But that is one of the best things about Iron Man 3. I think the I do seem to remember here, liking liking how Iron Man 3 handled that storyline better than this one. You know, the the thing here is that you you can't say you, here's the movie where somebody pushes everybody away because they're an, they're an alcoholic and they have physical fights in robot suits with one of those people while also completely separate from that. A massive government agency is trying to force them to do something. Well, at the same time, a guy wants to get them with laser whips because of what their dad did. While at the same time, they have a competitor who wants to build robots to kill everybody. You know what I mean? Like it's it's. Mm-hmm. Like any one yeah. of these are fine, but all of them together is 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 it is worth I, noting, and I think you're I think you're right. The movie did make some missteps in this. It is worth noting that you know watching this again, one of the things that jumped out at me was this film was really Marvel's first step into okay, now we are creating a universe. Um, you know, suddenly, you know the you know the introduction of Natasha Romanoff. I'd forgotten that this was the first time we saw we see Black Widow. So when she came onto the screen, I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's right! This was the first time." Um, at the very end, uh, when I think uh, when Tony is in the uh, Tony is in Shield headquarters, and there's a newscast on in the background, I actually paused it to see it because it's even because the the font or the text is written backwards because it's sort of like a mere reflection of the newscast. But the newscast is saying incident at Culver University, which was uh, uh, yeah. which was Hulk related. Um, and then, of course, the I I had forgotten the joy and delight that the Marvel post credit scene used to be. Um, and especially early on, like with this one, when suddenly, uh, you know, they, you know, Phil Coulson alludes to, yeah, there's this thing going down in New Mexico I need to take care of. Um, like there, that is given more than one line in the film. And then at the very end, uh, you know, it shows him pulling up in the car and looking down into the crater and seeing Mjolnir there. And in the, I can't remember exactly, but I don't know if Thor had actually been announced at that point. So for, no, it, it, at this point, at this point, the entire Avengers one plan had been announced. Um, and mm -hmm. Thor was almost done shooting. Um, yeah, at the point but that, it's, that this came out. If you think back to those the days of the quote unquote infancy of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that since uh, nowadays, you know, even with Infinity Wars, you know, with the post credit scene of just like, oh look, it's the Car- Captain Marvel logo. It was like, oh nifty. Ten years ago, when they dropped something like that, I was like, oh my god, that's right, they're doing this one. Like there was, and 
to be fair, you can't keep up that sense of excitement and ecstasy no. uh, with every film over 10 years. But it was nice yeah, to go. Infinity War had to, to do it by back. saying, by saying, hey, everyone's in this one now. Like, that's the, yeah. the only way they could really get that. Oh, yeah. I, by I, the way, I think I'd like, I, I agree note, with you that. Yeah. I was going to say, it's a complete side note. Um, I saw on Facebook this wonderful meme the other day. It was a picture of a brain, and it showed half a brain fighting itself. And one brain was going, I'm getting to sleep. I'm finally getting to sleep. I'm finally getting to sleep. And then the insomnia part of the brain going, oh, yeah? Think about this. Uh, Nick Fury's entire plan uh, would only work on the premise that Captain Marvel was not one of the people that was disappeared by Thanos' snap. Oh, I think and I then saw the other you share brain that. wakes wide open. Is like what? That that insomnia meme is going around a lot. They just change the things that the brain says to keep you up. But uh, yeah, but that's that, definitely one of them. That particular idea that oh yeah, she could have totally just been part of the fifty percent that got snapped out. It just made me smile. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Um, but the uh, I I agree with you. I think yes, Marvel bit off more than it could chew in this film. Um, I guess I'm willing. Now, looking back on the history of it all, I'm a little more willing to forgive them for that in this uh, than I was in, say, Age of Ultron, which I also really enjoyed. But Age of Ultron was like, okay, you guys have been doing this for years now, um, so you should be a little bit better at, you know, not so blatantly integrating all the other films that you're trying to set up. This was really their first time doing that. So I think it's a little bit more understandable that they made a few that they made a few missteps in the way. I will say this, um, that it is to Age of Ultron's credit. And again, I'm not damning this film. And I want to say some good things about this film in a minute. But Age of Ultron had like 10 characters and was introducing even more than this film introduces and made missteps in doing so. And yet I would say that film is more concise and has more heart and has more th- and has more singular thematic resonance than this film does, despite the fact that it has multiple multiple protagonists and multiple stories doing multiple things. Lo- you know, the film may be like it should feel more bloated, but it does not feel as I, I don't I guess bloated's not the term. This film feels like it suffers from multiple personality disorder. Like it's like it's just too many films. And I think that's an interesting sec- distinction because that's the one thing I never felt with this film was bloat. There were frequently times yeah, when I don't I felt feel like bloat. You could, you could, yeah, because bloat implies a, a slow pacing issue as well. Uh, well, it implies a slow pacing and also an effort. Bloat also happens when there is an effort to be epic. You know mm, what I mean? Like yeah. if this film had ended with the Hammerbots picking up New York and New York is flying through the sky, then you might say it was bloated. But this mm. this film makes an attempt to be sort of sort of breezy and Iron Man-ish in its in in its scope, which I appreciate. But there is a another problem that I have with the film that I'm gonna throw out at that is the reason it's the one-two punch. You have the film that is all over the place in terms of of theme and in terms of just sort of the um the what it's trying to pull off emotionally. And it's you have that. And then the second problem this film has is what works 85% of the time in sort of the improvisational nature that all the, uh, what the actors are doing the 15% of the time that it doesn't work. Um, what were some of those times that it that... didn't work? Cause I was, I was actively looking for, you know, the, one of the things this movie is famous for is, Oh, they improvised a whole bunch of their scenes. Um, so I was, you know, this time going through and I was watching that and I was watching for 
there was no particular moment that jumped out at me as, oh, that was just, that was poorly done. So what were those moments for you? I think that the, that the rooftop scene is brutal at the end. I think that the that the scene where it's supposed to be the emotional denouement of the film is I think that again up to that point I like Pepper Pot so much more in this film. I like her so much more. I think that not only is the character written better but I feel like like what um Gwyneth Paltrow is doing is so much better. I feel like she's found her character. I feel like she's frankly a better actress in this film than she was in the first one. But like the first one had the but you'll die. Um moment uh there is a shrill shrewish pepper that appears at the end of this film that. what you're dying interesting you're dying what, what do you mean you're dying why would you say you're dying like 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 pepper is too oh, smart I and too pepper is too smart i love that and one too, i hate it i hate it a lot and i was t- i'll tell you why Pepper is too smart and too capable a character who has pr- proven herself to be cool under pressure and able to handle a lot. She was just facing off against Justin Hammer and doing really well with that in, in massive like like things. She knows. She does not not know that Tony is up there fighting for his life against robots. She, he knows that there, she knows there's a massive battle going on, a battle the likes of which has not been seen ever in the history of New York City. We're talking... Not as big as Ultron, but we're talking enormous well, amounts pre-incident. of destruction and casualties and huge things are happening and it's all pointed at Tony. And at the time, she's just going, well, you're dying? What do you mean you're dying? What do you mean? Like the the pepper that I was seeing through the entire rest of the movie would go, Tony, if that's true, we got to talk about this. But you do what you need to do and then then we need to have See, a serious See, but I, th- I feel like if she, if she had done that, that would have been a, that would have been a betrayal of the nature of the relationship that Tony and Pepper have built over the past two films. There is, yes, the Pepper does come into her own. And, you know, as like, we are all different people depending on who we're interacting with, particularly if there are pre-established patterns with the people that we're with. It's the classic thing of you go off to college and become your own person. And then when you return for summer vacation, suddenly you fear yourself being pulled back into uh, all of the expectations and thoughts of uh, what your family thinks about you, even though you went off and were this totally different person. Um, the nature of Tony and Pepper's dialogue and their chemistry, even in the other parts of the film, is she is perpetually flustered by him. Um, and but she's it's not quiet, the case. She's, of, she's quietly and smartly flustered. Her the scene in the office where where he's trying to relate to her and she she's flustered, but she's she owns herself in that in that scene. Is I did I that's the thing I didn't see her losing herself at all in that when her saying but dying. It's the same thing. Like if a, you know you're in a high stress situation already. Your friend and then it turns out that your friend is because clearly she knows that he's not talking about the potentially dying in the battle that's happening above. You know, if you're in that situation that's high stress, you're not on, you're not speaking person to person. You're speaking over the phone, essentially, or over a video phone. And then it becomes clear that, oh, yeah, by the way, I have cancer and I haven't been telling you this whole time. Like, I I think it's completely forgivable that your frustration pushes you to a level of higher volume and that your voice gets a little more shrill. See, and I will say this. I think, A, I, A, I entirely disagree with you um i've been in life and death situations lots of times 
Um, I've had situations where people are people are dying, and and you know we've had to do chest compressions on them and start running a code and try and save their life. And and either their nurse or their tech or the person who found them or their family member starts freaking out. And you take that person and you you kindly but firmly remove them from the situation. Oh yeah, you no. Go, the, but you you go. You, you go, don't this tell is, the this person is, that. You remove them well, from what the situation, is, is but then she, you don't. Te- but then you don't tell them that. Oh, you just became weaker because of what you just did there. Um, you don't. You don't tell them that. But she is heroic in her own right, and she has been strengthened throughout this film. And and maybe it's not just the performance. Maybe it's the writing. Maybe it's that that if you want to have her character go through the arc of getting stronger and, and, and finding herself, you don't write this scene. So maybe I don't want to lay it at the feet of Gwyneth Paltrow for the way that she performed it. But for this that conversation to happen right there seems... You know, Tony would shut it down. She would be smart enough to shut it down. She would be the in. She would be the person who, after it, like when she first gets on the roof, she goes, "I can't, I can't take it. The stress that, even though I could tell that it was improvised, even though I could, I was getting the sense this was just the actors riffing a little bit, um, which takes me out of the movie. It's it's one of the reasons I I can't watch some modern Saturday Night Live. It's the reason that I never liked Jimmy Fallon on Saturday Night Live. Is the minute I could like sense that oh, this is just the actor riffing. I'm way pulled out but that's you know that's a style thing but i what do you mean by like, the actor riffing? Say, can you explain that a bit more like they're on this so okay you've done you've done comedy i've done comedy we've done we've been on the stage doing you know where where there isn't necessarily a script but you have two actors who are pretty good at 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 just coming up with stuff and they're just riffing off of each other even in a dramatic situation they're just kind of coming up with it and they're enjoying the energy it's that it's that you know, it, it's that zip zap zap is a game that you that you play in in improv games where you just like pass the energy back and forth really really fast and it's it's like it in some cases it's fun to see it is the basis of all of the the humor that I hate from like the new Ghostbusters movie where it's just like clearly everyone's just coming up with like stuff to say um, and I guess my thought is my my feeling is is a much more um, I like I like things to have a little more weight and to have their moments and i guess i'd like things a little more scripted than they are but i again i don't want to say that that's as deadly i'll, I'll say let me get back to the roof in a minute but i want to go back real quick to the the her 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 you're why you're dying that um that that I don't want to just put it at, at her feet. I think that that conversation happening at that time in that way, you know who Pepper is, or at least the Pepper that I saw. Pepper is the one who breaks down after the crisis is over. But during the crisis, she, you know, she's a cool character on the on, in her interactions with Justin Hammer. But knowing that Tony's up there, she's smart enough to pull herself together and go... I'm I'm going to pull myself together for now, you know, and then and then we're going to we're going to deal with it when the time comes. And I just I agree like with that you that there... she's the sort I no I I agree with you that she's the sort of person who breaks down after. I guess the thing is that there was nothing about that moment that to me in any way said breakdown. That was I, it... there was emotional intensity, but there wasn't there there was no, there was not a sense of panic, there was not a sense of losing control. It was that what that was was somebody who was still in control of the situation, was still handling things, but was just letting their frustrations show. 
I, I, I mean, I guess we're gonna have to agree to disagree. It seemed very much. Yeah. Uh, it seemed a betrayal of the strength that she was. She was getting the other problem I have with the, the rooftop is a scene at the end where clearly they're just having fun, and then Rhodey's there, and they're just having fun, and you can kind of tell them they're like, yes, their reactions are naturalistic, but you can also just kind of tell that they're riffing, and it just, you know. I felt it. I, it was just really problematic for me in in that scene. It doesn't always bother me. You know who's really good at it in this film? I would give credit where it's due. Um, I feel like uh, I, I feel like Sam Rockwell. I can also tell that he's riffing and making stuff up. But when he does it, maybe because he just does it slightly slower, it doesn't kind of have that pitter patter. You know, nineteen nineteen. You know, tw- like sort of that nineteen twenty. Sort of that. Um, the Ocean's Eleven kind of like boom, ba ba, boom, 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 boom. You know, like the yeah. Do you I know think, the, the pattern that you're talking about? I I agree with you completely on everything that you've just described in terms of the rooftop scene and Sam Rockwell. The what's interesting well, to me is I think, and this comes down to the per, to personal taste, is that Sam Rockwell's riffing did have a slower feel to it and actually felt a lot more awkward to me. I did not feel that he had nearly the same kind of chemistry with the other actors as. Um, as uh, the other ones did, but I well, think Sam Rockwell I, was I, was deliberately all of his. Sam, I mean, that's what you hired. Oh, Sam he was Rockwell deliberately for, playing so. up the awkward. Yeah, yeah. Sam Rockwell always plays the character who thinks he has the chemistry but doesn't. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, his. That's, I mean, he 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 won me with his Zaffid Beeblebrox in Hitchhiker's Guide was transcendent yeah. for that exact reason. I, and if you haven't seen Moon, you have to see Moon. He's incredible in Moon. Yeah. I like him always. I always like Sam I, Rockwell. I, like I totally understand what you're saying about about the uh, the whole thing with the actors riffing, um, and I think, uh, and you are 100 uh, percent, and a number of people uh, feel exactly as you do in that sense of they don't like it when they can see that the actor's playing. Um, you want something with a little bit more, you know, you you want total sincerity, um, so that you can be totally drawn into that moment. I I absolutely get that. Um, for me, it doesn't bother me just a, quite as much because there is still a sense of delight going on. It's the same sort of thing. Well, it's not exactly the same, but Patrick Stewart, there is not a moment on film or stage where I cannot see him acting. And I don't care because he clearly is just delighting in it so much. Um, in the scenes where the actors are riffing, what the the number one sense that I'm getting is there is a playfulness to it, which actually, even in super serious moments, I don't mind as much because it just, I mean, playfulness just up, uplifts me in whatever mood I'm in. All that being said, I completely recognize that for some people, there's a legit thing to saying, no, no, this is a super serious moment. You should not be, there should be nothing playful about this moment. Yeah, and I guess that's, I mean, I and I don't want to like again. I sound like I'm just ragging on the film, and I want to be. I'm be very clear at the end that I'm not. Um, but the the scene at the end is, and it's so funny how one scene can can because that's the scene I remember hating, and I hated it as much this time. I think the problem you have is you've ramped up the playfulness by like ten percent from the first film. Then you've taken that playfulness and you've you've 
compounded it with having a film that feels like it's it's pinging around all all the time and the the emotional through line seems to continually be changing and i like everybody's sort of feeling differently at different times in the film like in in contrast to how they just were and so there i don't feel a a, a sense of, an emotional through line of the film and then you have the riffing on top of it and then it then you have this sort of funny interaction in the middle of the most tense part of the film that seems completely separate from what's going on. And then you have, I don't want to say it's as bad as, as Lois kissing Clark at the end of man of steel, but you have this funny, playful, romantic, like clearly like a good 150, 200 people probably died. If not more in this battle, you saw a piece of buildings fall on people. There are explosions everywhere. There was, there were like 70 different robots and one of them happened to be next to Pepper and Iron Man saved her, but the entire building was exploded. One would assume that there are robots that were around people that exploded as well um, because you see explosions everywhere and they're in the background and yet you're having this funny scene up on a rooftop with a kiss and stuff. Well, I, 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 I think, think what you're tapping into there and that's something that, uh, that's something we can discuss in other uh, podcasts too is that is, I, I think there is a certain trope in certain superhero films of, it. it's part of the swashbuckler, uh, that sort of swashbuckler uh, adventurous feel in that you don't, in the moment and even right after the moment, um, you know, some there are some films, some superhero films that really drive home the fact that, oh, there's a lot of innocent people getting killed here. And then there's other ones that don't. Because what they're saying is, we're not making that kind of movie. Um, and in the, like, if they had actually shown people getting killed, if, if they had shown a single on-screen fatality aside from, um, you know, the bad guys, then I would have 100% agreed with you that the tone of the rooftop scene was completely wrong. Um, but they didn't. Even in that final scene, they were still trying to keep a sense of, oh, it was exciting, definitely, and, and epic. But it was not dark. It was and not so I dark. Didn't feel no, like, but I do. I yeah. it bothered me at the time. It seemed so sudden, like everyone's fighting for their lives, and now this is happening right at the end. It seemed it seemed tacked on. I will I will forever be thankful to Man of Steel and the and the honest trailer for Man of Steel for taking that trope and going, hey, you know what? That didn't that that never really works. And I think now you'd have the line of of everyone's clear. Okay, good. Everyone's good. Like, like, you know what I mean? And then that scene happened. I think that man of steel made it so that people are, are more, people are more conscious of not doing that at the end. Cause it felt tacked on Rhodey showing up, throwing out lines. You, you, you look like two seals fighting over a grape. No, they didn't. They had a little kiss. Like that's, that's, you know, clearly it was like, Hey, come on. Think of something funny to say, Don Cheadle, who, I so we we don't have a lot of time. I have a heart out in just a few minutes, but I just want to zip through the new players real quick. You know, Robert Downey Jr. is still wonderfully affable. Gwyneth Paltrow better than she was the first time around, even if I have complaints in the end. Do we agree about those two things? Yes. Yeah, they're 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 great. Nick Fury is Nick Fury, and he's just always awesome. Um, I said something last time when I said I liked the original Rhodes better than Don Cheadle, and I would like to modify that statement if I may. <laughs> um. Yeah. I think that uh, the original Rhodey um, owned the character and created a super defined character in the way that Robert Downey Jr. did better than Don Cheadle does. So like the second you see him, you know exactly everything he is and everything he's about the same way that the, the same way you do with Tony. 
Um, mm-hmm. I feel like he comes out and and he's he's playing like like something very distinct. The way that Samuel Jackson, you know exactly what he's giving, or the way Scarlett Johansson, you know exactly what she's giving at the moment. And I feel like he did the same thing. I feel like Don Cheadle plays a much more human roadie. And I feel mm. like if the films were going to go the way they were going to go, I didn't need another character with that much swagger. And mm. and making him more human actually, I think, will play better for this film and films to go. I would not have enjoyed um, Terrence Howard in the roadie that was in this film. I wouldn't have enjoyed. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about Terrence Howard's roadie fighting Stark in at the birthday party. Yeah, it would have been swagger versus swagger, and there's uh, I mm-hmm. needed a counterpoint to the swagger. Um, That's a good point. So I, I think in the Terrence Howard did a great job of of giving huge life to a character with very few scenes in the first film, um, and I think he's better at at that than Don Cheadle is. Um, but I think that Don Cheadle is a better choice for this roadie and the roadie going forward in that he provides a a human counterpoint to the already massive swagger of the people around him. Um, That's a very so nice way of putting I, it. I, I want I also, to give Don Cheadle his props. He's great in this. He's great always. Let's be I, clear. I've never yeah, seen him do yeah, Oh, yeah. Bad. Absolutely. Um, I also uh, want to draw attention to possibly what I believe one of the best ways I've ever seen of handling a cast change uh, where he shows up and the first thing he says to Tony is, I'm here. It's me. Deal with it. Let's move on. And yeah. it was both 100% justifiable in the scene and very clearly super meta. It was, yeah. it was both lampshading and, but the thing is, is that immediately after that, yeah, I was completely able to let it go. I was like, oh, ah, ah, I see what they did. Okay, cool. Let's go. Like it was, yeah, it was just, great. He, they didn't make he, a huge thing. He's a totally different roadie, and I like this roadie yeah. better. So, so I'm I'm down for it. Scarlett Johansson, she is a. I did not like her originally when I saw this film, and I don't love her here. Um, I feel like she's sexying it up for the camera a bit. Um, uh, and I wonder and, how much and, of that is directing too. Like that's I, I agree with you that the character is sexying it up a bit, um, well, but whether I, I just, or not, like, just just even line deliveries that don't need to be sexy are kind of sexy. Um, I think that Scarlett Johansson was in a period in her life where that these were the characters that she was playing, and she was playing, you know, she was the object of interest in many films. Um, it mm-hmm. will take, um, it will take the Avengers about half of the Avengers where she doesn't do that. But half the time the Avengers, I feel like she does do that. And half the time she doesn't, it will take Captain America winter soldier for me to yeah, find. That's a, really the one, a, a, a different, um, a, a different Natasha. And then, and then of course her in um, infinity war, she doesn't have a lot to do, but I feel like there's no more of that vamping at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel and like I think she, that's, you know, that's, well, I was going to say, I think that she at that Joe. point has had to do, She's had to do other. She stopped playing those characters. Like, like I think it was Match Point was maybe another one where she stopped playing those characters that were or um, Lost in Translation, where she's just so vexing that like like they stopped giving her just those roles and she had started doing these other very very interesting roles. 
And I think that that you know people smartly said, "Hey, let's have you do something else." Um, and to be honest, superhero uh, films too are sort of getting away from that trope. Like the one that the one thing that jumped out at me, the scene where she is changing in the car, and Happy yeah, does the little look. Yeah, it does well, and that's the thing is it's yeah it's problematic, and it was um, because it it says, "Oh yeah, no, we're interest we're introducing this awesome badass female character, isn't it that great and woman power and all that?" But she's also super sexy. Um, I feel like if you were introdu- if there was a film that was introducing Black Widow now. Um, you would not have a moment like that in the car. Like, being super sexy is no longer seen as a requirement for a female superhero. Uh, and that is awesome. Um, so I think part of it is your... I mean, yeah, ScarJo has definitely uh, evolved as an actress over time, but I feel like the the medium as a whole has evolved in that way as well. Um, I think that the other thing that she... Um... Well, okay, that scene, I while problematic, you know, I think I like how she deals with it. She's not, she doesn't pearl clutch when he sees her looking. She's like, watch the road, mm-hmm. and and yeah. l- like there's there's all at once an acknowledge uh, a, an acknowledgement. Um, there's all at once an acknowledgement that there's a um. Sorry, I got distracted. There's an there's an acknowledgement that that he should not be doing what he's doing but also that like that she doesn't need to feel victimized now it is problematic that he's doing what he's doing it's extra problematic knowing that he's also the director of the film so mm-hmm. there's like there's no world where that had to happen um i think yeah. in you know in today's climate it would be it would be more possible more um, pro- it would be more problematic yeah um all right so in that I have a heart out and I'm sorry guys that that's something that I, that, that we have to, I'd love to go through more of the stuff in Iron Man too. Um, but you know, we want to make sure we got this show out to you in time for, uh, for the Thanksgiving holiday, because Hey, we don't want to make you have to wait to find out what we thought of Iron Man too. So I'm going to say on a scale you know, of one that's to so topical five, right now. Yes. On, on a scale of, of, of one to five plastic Iron Man masks on baby Peter Parker's, how would you rate Iron Man 2? Wait, I'm sorry. Was that meant to be Peter Parker? It's absolutely, it has been said that that was Peter Parker, yes. That is amazing. Okay, I love that. Yep. That might have actually impacted my rating. Um, I would rate this, so before coming in, I would rate this as a very solid four. Um, you have successfully talked me down to a 3.75 based on... Yes, there are, I mean, you know, again, a three is a movie that is fine. And there was nothing that was not fine about this film. There was no, to me, there was no absolute massively glaring weak points. There were just a number of things story-wise that probably could have been done better. Um, I have to say, I found the the final fight at the end way more epic than the final fight with uh, with Obadiah Stane in the first one. Like, I remember watching, sure, it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, they're flying. Th-. I mean, that was, this was the first time we were seeing actual aerial superhero stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is exciting. Um, so, yeah, 3.75. Um, I'm also, I'm going to, I'm going to give this a, I'm going to give this a, a solid three. Um, I want to say, you talked me up from a 2.5 to a three. Um, I'm trying to think if it is still my least favorite uh Marvel film. The thing is that most of the Marvel films are really, really good. 
Um, I used to put it at the bottom because of the things that graded me, and these are the things that I talked about, but I forgot about the awesome fight at the end. I fought, forgot about the awesome aerial fight. We didn't even get a chance to talk about the Monaco race car scene. Some people say that's an amazing scene. I strongly disliked it in every way. Um, I felt like the effects in that scene weren't very good. Him walking through the fire wasn't very good. I felt like the physics of it made absolutely no sense. He wasn't wearing any kind of protection. He gets hit by a car five times and walks through fire and is fine just because they want to make it look cool. It it breaks the reality of the film for me. Um, no, you didn't. I'm at a 2.5. Uh, three, except for the Monaco scene, pulls me down to a 2.5. It just seemed like it, it was out of place and had nothing to do with anything. So... Um, so I'm going to give it 2.5, but I am going to say that uh, that the good parts in this film are up there with some of the best of Marvel. They really are. This is a film that is torn down by the bad stuff from the heights where it is. And the problem with ranking it among other Marvel movies is there are movies like The Incredible Hulk, which is you know another one that usually is down at the bottom, where The Incredible Hulk does not make nearly as many glaring mistakes, but it also does not have nearly as many awesome high points as this film. It is, you know, and same thing with like Thor, the dark world. Like it's the, the bottom of my list is always going to be the incredible Hulk, Thor, the Thor, the dark world and Iron Man two are always going to be the bottom of my list. Um, I'm going to put this above those two, uh, at least until I rewatch those, because I feel like despite its mistakes, you can take all of its mistakes um, and put them in 15 minutes and then you still have an hour and 45 minutes of enjoyable film. Um, so I'm going to say that uh, that 2.5, but you know, not not the disaster I remember, but a film, a flawed film with a cu- with a couple of disasters within it and a couple of really wonderful moments. So uh, do you think that's fair? Um, I think it tracks with what you've been saying the over the course of the. Over the no, you the must podcast. agree with me. <laughs> um. At one point, uh, our good friend Arthur said to me, the worst thing in the world to say to Justin is to go, it was fine. At which point Justin has to go, no, (laughs) you either must agree with me or you must battle me. To this day, that is still the cruelest thing that you can say to a Firefly fan. If they say, have you seen Firefly? Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. Like Um, they can handle, they can handle you hating it because then clearly you're just a, you know, some bourgeois swine who doesn't get it at all. But the fact that somebody could enjoy it and then not absolutely be in love with it. But that's for another time. And to that end, I would say that this film is fine. (laughs) (laughs) Shrug. Uh, all right, so uh, that's it. Uh, Iron Man Three is coming up. A very interesting film. Again, a controversial film that I'm I'm interested in talking talking about. A film that I hated with a vehemence the first time I saw it, mm-hmm. and I've seen it since. And my opinion of it has changed somewhat. And we'll talk about the why. Uh, and again, sorry for the truncated nature of some of this show, but we're gonna really try and get this out uh, by Thanksgiving weekend so that you guys are able to listen to it. So uh, for now, uh, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Uh, happy hope you Thanksgiving. Have a great one. Be safe in your travels. Watch lots of superhero movies. And my name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers. Stay super. 
Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Endlight Entertainment. 